Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi, this is Ted Price from Insomniac Games. On today's episode, I had the chance to talk to my great friend and neighbor, Vince Impella. Vince is the former CEO and founder of Infinity Ward and current CEO and founder of Respawn. We cover a wide range of topics from what it takes to start multiple successful companies to growing to multiple teams to making tough design calls in AAA game development. Please join me for a fantastic conversation with Vince. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Hey, Vince. Hey, Th- thanks for coming over. Hey, my pleasure. And so you and I have known each other for a long time in this industry. In fact, we actually live in the same neighborhood. That's true. And uh, it's I always it's it's weird how small this industry is. Not just uh, in terms of how often we see each other at events, but just how there's how many connections there are. Yeah, that's true. You live across the street, and I see you at events, and never in the neighborhood, or so. Must have that something to do with what we're doing all day, all the time. Yeah, I think so. I think we're all pretty busy, right? Yeah. Well, it's an all-consuming industry. And so you've you've been in the industry for, was it 25, 30 years now? Is it really? I It must be. Because when did you start Infinity, uh, Infinity Ward? Well, I think I got into the industry in the probably early 90s. Okay. Yeah, so. Definitely 25 plus years. Wow. And then Infinity Ward was probably 2002. Okay. And what inspired you to start Infinity Ward? Well, at that point, we were at a company called 2015, and we made uh, Medal of Honor Allied Assault. And the team, which you know, a lot of us still work together, the core team was just great, and we didn't like the conditions we were kind of working under. So we all decided to leave, said, hey, why don't we leave together? Because we're, we're a decent group, right? So we decided to strike out together from 2015 and form Infinity Ward. And when you did, did you have a specific game in mind that you wanted to make? Well, we actually were originally contracted by EA to do a sequel and an expansion pack to Medal of Honor Allied Assault. Okay. Got it. So, so that's, there... that's how the company kind of founded itself. What were some of the things that you wanted to do differently in terms of the, the World War II shooters? What did you guys talk about as in terms of changing the genre at back, way back then? I think at that point, it wasn't about changing as much as, you know, setting up the new company, getting kind of everything running and doing something that was a, a sequel. So it was keeping things, you know, like taking it one step and not like redefining everything. And for you, starting up a brand new company, were you wearing a lot of different hats in terms of running things, but also making the game? Yeah, I mean, that's when at that point we were, you know, 20, 20 people, maybe 22. So it's a little bit of, you know, whatever needs to be done. You know, you work on the design, you work on some art stuff, you work on audio stuff, you work on, you know, movies, you work on taking out the trash. 
It's, you know, it's, it's a small group, everyone firing on all cylinders and kind of getting whatever needs to be done, done. So what was your particular passion? What did you like most about production? It's a lot of problem solving, right? It's, it's not something that's the same every day. Like the job isn't go to work, stamp widgets. It's go to work, see what's on fire, put it out, figure out new ways to kind of push people to innovate, to do new things, to, to do things we haven't done before. So that's the kind of the beauty of the job for me. Were you, but even way back then, right? When you're coming off of being in production and now running a company, but also helping with making the game, were you doing any of the art or helping with the designs, the level designs or any of that? Or was it mostly just helping people focus on the right things? It was a lot of help with stuff. I mean, there's there's some of my art in Allied Assault. So that's I awesome. Ever, yeah. <laughs> it's terrible, but it was just, you know, a need for things to be done. And then working with the designers, coming up with, you know, kind of the holistic view of what the game is and figuring out where level's going to go. And so it's, it's a little bit of everything. So And back then, what I recall, and you can correct me if I'm off on this, most first-person shooters were fairly linear. And, and this was getting from point A to point B and then sort of then putting all those le levels together in, in a linear story. Uh, when you guys were talking about the first game, did you, did you start with the story or did you start with sort of the, the macro layout? Um, it was less of a cohesive story and more of a kind of set piece moments. So it's, you know, take these key moments in World War II and how do you string them together into something that, that feels kind of good for players. Makes sense. And what led you to Call of Duty? Well, so we were doing the sequel to Allied Assault and the expansion pack. Uh, EA, once Allied Assault got really popular, they wanted to bring us in and make us part of EA. We had just kind of formed our own company. We didn't really want to do that. So we had a, uh, a difference in vision, Okay, we'll call it. And uh, that ended up to us parting ways. And uh, we went and worked with Activision on Call of Duty. And that was kind of done to... It was, it's kind of a spiritual successor, right? Yeah. In a way. So we kind of did it to, to crush Medal of Honor. <laughs> I, I hate to say that. It sounds terrible because it makes me feel bad because I love Medal of Honor. Well, there definitely was a huge rivalry back then. I remember that. And it, you guys were going head to head. And Call of Duty, at least by my recollection, came out on top big time. Oh, big time. Yeah. And what, what, what do you think the magic ingredients were that helped elevate it? It's a good question. I mean, I think for us going forward, we were a cohesive team that had done it before. They were trying to now do it with a group that was, you know, playing catch up. So, you know, we naturally had the advantage. Were there certain things that you decided to focus on in Call of Duty that hadn't been done before in World War II shooters? Not really. I mean, I think it's about that kind of cinematic moments that we yeah. started in Allied Assault and kind of grew to be bigger into, into um, Call of Duty. So it's about big set piece moments where the world feels alive. There's a war happening around you. It's not just, you know, you're not the, the one man killing machine that, you know, can take on the entire Nazi army. It's about a squad, a group, you know, kind of bringing that emotion into it. That's what I remember. I remember those moments when you're storming these impossible enemy fortifications, right? They're just, they're huge. Lots of guys are firing at you, but you're with your team. And it was that, it was, there were those, there were those cinematic moments that I, I didn't remember having seen in any other first person shooters. 
Yeah, I think they started an Allied assault. Okay. So it kind of came from there. But you guys and, refined and, them to the point where it felt believable. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> well, I say that because we at Insomniac were looking at what you guys were doing. And at the time, we were working either early on or, or in the middle of resistance. And we were looking at all of the other first-person shooters out there and asking ourselves, who's doing it right? Who's creating this sense of immersion and this sense of believability? Like you feel like you're there and you guys were doing it consistently. Yeah, well, that's what we were going for. So I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, it kept on, what again, what I recall, because this all is sort of ancient history for us, but right. it kept growing. The, the The mythos behind Call of Duty kept kept increasing and you guys were adding more and more refinements to the formula. So at some point you shifted off of World War II. That's right. And what, what led to that decision? Well, at that point we did uh, Allied Assault, Call of Duty, Call of Duty 2, all World War II games. We had done, you know, three World War II games in a row. So it was kind of a, a need to grow ourselves and the brand into something new and unique. And it was contested. Activision didn't want it. Mm. Activision did not want Modern Warfare. They wanted more another sequel in World War II because it was safer, I guess, right? Um, so we just pushed and said, this is where we want to take it and, you know, kind of expand what we can do because there's, you know, different theaters of war, different weapons, vehicles, things that you can kind of take on to a new level. So how did it go internally? Did you have debate inside of Infinity Ward about whether we should make this move or not? I think early on, you know, because it is a, uh, you're taking something that's successful and like you said, constantly growing and thinking about reimagining it. So it's a little scary, mm -hmm. but I, it was pretty easy to kind of make the switch. Was there a point where you guys felt you had played out World War II or you were just running out of material or was there an infinite amount of material to choose from? Yeah, I don't think I would say we played it out. I think we played it out for ourselves in doing, you know, yeah. three games in a row that's, you know, six plus years of development on one kind of one setting. So we wanted to do something different ourselves to grow, yeah. you know, as, as a team. How did you approach the brainstorming process as, when you shifted gears to modern warfare? Um, we do a lot of like, we had a lot of great designers, right? They're allowed to pitch ideas, come up with uh, different settings, things they can do, throw some ideas together, and then we kind of see where they work in the bigger kind of game. Do you do you grab everybody at once and say get into a group setting and start of start throwing things out there, or do you have more concentrated, smaller groups coming up with ideas? Um, I wish I could say it was like a really refined process that we have down to a science. It's it's really more chaotic than that. Um, it depends on what we're doing. Yeah, I think um, at that point it was more probably smaller groups coming up with ideas. Okay. Did you have a creative director or somebody who was in charge of pulling all those ideas together? Um, yeah, we had, uh, at that point, when we went to Modern Warfare, it was Jason West who was kind of leading the charge on on what that game would be. Got it. Well, the reason I ask about brainstorming is because this is one of those, I think, industry-wide challenges where there's there's no right way to do it. Right. And I think it's really nice to hear people sharing their perspective on what works and what doesn't for different projects, different studios. Yeah, I think it depends on the team. It depends on the subject matter. Um, like with Titanfall, we did, uh, for Titanfall 2, we did a thing called Action Blocks, which I think uh, one of the designers actually did a talk at GDC on that you can look at. Okay. Um, but that went really well because everyone kind of came up with these different ideas for gameplay. And they did little snippets of here's what it would look like. 
and then we kind of watched and looked through them all. And, you know, some would be amazing and some would be, eh, okay, that's not going to work in a game. So the designer would prototype actual gameplay and you'd watch it on screen Correct. or play it? How much time did you give designers to do that? Um, I think it was about three months. Okay. Maybe slightly more. And did it, did you say to each designer who was interested, okay, you have three months to prototype an idea and then at the end of the three months you show it or were you seeing things along the way? They were showing things along the way. Okay. Yeah. How do you keep, uh, how do you keep something like that on track? Um, you don't apparently. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, we went kind of long in the design process on Titanfall 2, huh. kind of to get to a point where we kind of lock things in. So we ended up, you know, the downstream kind of components of the game, like, you know, environmental art and audio kind of got a little crunched at the end because we went a little too long. Well, we, were you uh, presenting visually refined concepts as well as the design prototypes? No. But so, but everybody was just kind of throwing their stuff in just to make it functional. Was that the way it was working? Right. Okay. Yeah. They would, the, the artists would be working on things, but it's not the refined process of, you know, like what does it take to get a level to completion? And there's a lot of, you know, the environmental artists at the end kind of go in and really bring things to life. That makes sense. And so were, was your goal at the end of the three months to come up with the key features, new features for Titanfall 2? Yes. It was to kind of lock in the, what the gameplay moments, what the gameplay pieces would look like throughout the, the levels. And so in re related to that, given that you had such a strong foundation for gameplay on Titanfall 1, what did, did you talk about the balance of old to new on when you were going into designing Titanfall 2? Yeah, I mean, it's a little different because Titanfall 1 was a multiplayer-only game. Mm -hmm. So we kind of put those uh, story moments in the multiplayer and you know for some people it resonated for other people you know they ran by it at 100 miles an hour and didn't even notice it yeah so we kind of made the decision to make a single player so that's kind of where the 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 new ideas came into like the multiplayer we kind of had an idea of what that was going to be sure. right so it's taking what does a single player now in a titanfall universe mean and and kind of figuring out what gameplay elements and that's where the things like uh cause and effect came from where you you know blink between time yeah did you did you get fan feedback on what fans might want, even though you hadn't announced that you were going to do single you know, focus on single player, were they giving you feedback on just general mech mechanics and your, and then your, your pilot mechanics? Um, I mean, we got a lot of feedback, um, that always plays into it when you think about it. I don't know that we used like anything directly, you know, we changed a few things. We kind of tried to make the game a little more deliberate where it's not, Look, one of the criticisms we got is that it's always at 11. You know, you, you play through, you know, for an hour and you kind of set the controller down and you're like still shaking. So we kind of tried to even that out a little bit and make the, you know, the gameplay a little more tolerable at times. It's funny you say that, though. Is that a bad thing? I mean, if you if you walk, whenever I walked away from a Titanfall match, I did feel that adrenaline buzz. It felt like, wow, that was that was an over the top, incredible experience. And sure, I need a break, but I would like to go back and do it again. Well, I think that's the thing, though. We, we drove people to want to take a break from the game. And that is, that's kind of opposite of what you're going for, right? You want people to be as engaged as possible for as long as possible, especially in multiplayer. Yeah. So I think we did, the, we did the game that was a break between the bigger games like the Battlefields or Call of Duties. And, you know, so people would come and take a break, try it out, and they'd maybe come back a month later, but it wasn't as consistent a game. 
okay. as we would have liked. Okay, that makes sense. Well, going back to Titanfall 1, what was the brainstorming process like there? Where, where did the genesis of the idea occur? Well, that's a whole kind of mess, because at that point we were in a lawsuit with Activision. Um, so and actually, 42 of the people at our company were in a lawsuit wow. with Activision. So okay. it was, uh, we were doing that, trying to start the company, coming up with what tech we were going to use, coming up with ideas for games. And we, you know, we pitched a bunch of different ideas. Everyone got to throw some ideas around. Um, one of the artists, uh, Joel Emsley, did, uh, did the Titans, did some like mock-ups of them. He did some maquettes and people just kind of fell in love with it and kind of that pushed us to, a, to the Titanfall idea. At what point did the playable pilots come into play? They were always there. Okay. Because it was that, I remember seeing the first trailer you put out, and I think you showed some wall running. You showed the pilots getting out of the mech and, and actually doing some, some stuff that I would never expect from a mech game. I probably shouldn't even call it a mech game. But yeah, we don't like to call it a mech game. Sorry. I mean, it has, but, from oh, a game no, with it's mechs. great. It's yeah. fine. It's, but it's not a mech-only game, right? Right. It's, it's a game. It's a pilot and Titan game. Yeah. Well, was there any debate about whether pilot should be in the game, or was that always just an accepted mechanic from the beginning? Tons of debate. Because you're basically making two games. You have to have gameplay areas where wall running and small kind of pilot gameplay works. And you have to have areas where giant Titan gameplay works and they have to mesh together very well. So it's really kind of harder to make something compelling. So when you were talking about that, were people bringing up scope as an issue? I mean, making two games at once, right? That's a, that's a massive task. Right. What, what were some of the arguments well, for and against? Well, we initially didn't conceive it as just a multiplayer only game. We were kind of looking at it as single player two. Um, looking at the team that we had, you know, we were a fairly small team at that so at time, you know, new company. We decided to not work on single player because, you know, we didn't have the resources. There's a lot of problems in, you know, with the wall running and stuff. How do you constrain, you know, where the movement goes? And so made the decision to do multiplayer only. And then that kind of stopped the debate on, you know, when, hmm. if, if it should be pilot or pilot and Titan. I think that was, you know, little little bits of tension, not like big movements. Was that a, uh, was that a gradual thing or did you at one point just announce to the team, okay, guys, multiplayer only? Um, we talked about it before making the decision for probably a couple of months. Okay. So it, it took some time to kind of sort it out in, in everyone's head, right? Of like, are we really going to try that? Is it something, you know, worth doing? How did you approach buy-in on this? Did you talk to the whole team and say, are you in, are you out? Or... Is that something that you guys do in, as part of your culture? Yeah, we do. Um, we talk to kind of the leads first. So mm -hmm. kind of get the lead groups together. They represent their kind of core groups and walk to them all through the decision-making process of like, here's some things we're considering and here's why. And then let everybody kind of give feedback on what they thought of it. And at first, you know, everyone was like, what? That's crazy. Did you talk about the multiplayer backend much in terms of what the kind of support you would have to build to have a multiplayer only game that was setting a new bar? 
Um, I only I bring mean, this up because we've gone through this before too. And the the specter of of multiplayer is often a scary one. Because if, if, if you're not a multiplayer only company having released several multiplayer games, it's a there's so much beneath the surface that is easy to ignore and and not plan for, at least in our in, in Insomniac's experience. So I just kind of was wondering what it was like for you guys. I think we always assumed we'd make a multiplayer game. Okay. So it was kind of like just from the beginning, a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Well, you had a lot of experience doing that. I mean, yeah. that's something that you guys built your companies on. So. Yeah. Okay. So what is what is the decision-making culture like at Respawn today? How do you guys go about making big calls? Well, we have three teams now. So um, we have the VR game, we have Star Wars, and we have Titanfall. So each team is a little different, right? Um, we have a game director, though, that's in charge of each game. Okay. And generally, it, everything flows up to them, and they interact with their teams. Um, depends on how big the decision is. You know, if it's just, you know, level-based things, you know, kind of within the control of the scope of the game, that's mostly just falls on the game designer or the game director. Okay. And, and then if it's bigger than that, something that they want to change that's, you know, radically different, then, you know, we'll kind of all get together and talk. Do you have shared departments where you have, for example, audio working on multiple projects and, or do you have unique groups for each game? We generally have unique groups for each game. Wow. Okay. That's impressive. That's a, that's a lot of, a lot of moving parts. Yes. But, and how do those groups share information? Again, this sounds like dry stuff, but I, I bring this up because again, we find that communication between different groups is sort of can make or break a project. If it's going well, it's great. As soon as it starts going <laughs> off the rails, everything suffers. Yeah, I mean, I think it, different groups communicate better. Like the the audio guys generally talk all the time, and there's a lot of collaboration. Um, maybe not so much on the design side. Art, maybe a little bit. Hmm. Do you have any tricks that you guys use? Any any procedures that you've home built or homegrown that you feel work really well for Respawn? Not really. We try to get together like the group of all leads every once in a while, probably not more than once every three months, but just to kind of go over like what are things that you're seeing, you know, just company culture, hmm. development process, you know, just to kind of get a feel for for what's happening in different teams. And then we'll get together with just the game directors, like probably about that frequency as well. Okay. I say about because it kind of, you know, the intention is there, but it doesn't always work out with timing to, to do it. So we've been a little lax on it lately. Sure. Well, I so mean, now when that you're... we're talking, I'm going to go back and make sure that happens. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I think just personally, there can never be enough communication. And I mean, over communicating, it can be annoying for sure. I know it is. I over communicate sometimes and it annoys the heck out of people, but <laughs> it's, I, I prefer to do that than have people say, I never heard about that, or you didn't tell me, or, you know, fill in the blanks. And we've had that before, where people have been surprised by things, and you're like, yeah, okay, maybe should have, you know, it's hard though, right? that a little more widely. When you're in production, right? When, yeah. Especially if there's one team in production, one team in pre-production, another team releasing a game, then everybody's got different pressures, and it's easy to forget about yeah. the need. So We've speaking, had some people go like as you know, one of the reasons to grow to multiple teams is to give people opportunities to kind of learn new skills and to kind of 
advance in their career, right? So yeah. we've had some cross-pollinization of people. So that's good. That helps kind of keep the teams talking. That makes that makes sense. So so speaking of that, you went did you go from one to three teams? We went from one to two to three. Okay. How how fast was that transition? That's a good question. Um We started the second team probably a two plus years before starting the third. Okay. So we've been working for a while on uh, on what the second game would be. We actually we came up with a before signing up to do the Star Wars game, we had a prototype for something else that we were pitching, and ended up shelving that for the Star Wars opportunity. Nerd bucket list, you know, kind of stuff. <laughs> sure. So what are some things that went right and didn't go right when you were starting up, say, your second team? Um, I would say we grew slowly, which is good. Mm -hmm. Kind of work on the idea. Because one of the things when we started Respawn, we had a lot of people on day one because there was a bunch of people that left Infinity Ward and came to Respawn, like, right away. So you have, you know, almost a full team of people no game, no tech, no, you know, no idea of what you're going to do. Yeah. So there's a lot of people just clamoring for what am I going to be working on today? Um, doing that differently, you know, intentionally with uh, the second team to kind of grow slowly, figure out what the game is, get the kind of core group together worked out really well, I think. Okay. So you had, was, was that a specifically designed pre-production phase for the game where you were ramping people into it? Is that, is that what you're describing? Yes. Okay. Yeah. How big was that, if you don't mind me asking, how big was the team that started the idea? Well, I mean, it started with, you know, like we hired Stig and he brought people on. So it started with one and then gradually grew. When we pitched the prototype to publishers, it was probably 15 people. Okay. And were, was it a playable prototype? It was. Wow. Do you find that that's the the way today to to make it work when you're out there trying to get people to support your game? I don't think there is a way. I think it's, you know, it's so idea and kind of people dependent that you have to be a little flexible. Okay. Well, that's a great answer. I it's it's been my experience too. Mm -hmm. I mean, never there are very few developers now, I think, pitching big AAA games to publishers. Um so yeah, we all have our own approach. It's mostly you. <laughs> Not just insomniac. <laughs> there are a few others too. I think, I think. Uh, but let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about AAA games. Um, it's it's pretty interesting how this space continues to just motor on. And I don't know if you recall. I, I feel like it was a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, that there was some question about how long AAA games could exist because of the costs and because of the incredibly high break-evens. But AAA games continue to do really well, at least a, a set of AAA games. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's, I think it's not as many probably as there was five or six years ago. Yeah. So is it these big kind of breakout games that are only going to exist in the future? Well, what do you think? I hope not, but it kind of seems like it's trending that way, right? Like... You know, if I look at the games that my kids play, like, you know, it's the League of Legends or Warframes or, you know, things that are 
free to play and live for years and years. And that's what, you know, the way people are engaging with games now. And, you know, there's something great about that too. But, you know, I also like the big story games. But then you see something like, you know, Grand Theft Auto that sells, you know, endless numbers of units. It's, uh, that's great too. So. So there's maybe room for, for both. I mean, because the, the free-to-play games, so. Warframe is a great example of that, of a game that started small but just grew, 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 grew. And it's not something that we talk about much in the in right. the game space, but man, they've been killing it for a long, long time. Yep. How how challenging do you think it is to break into that space, which is the sort of the free-to-play AAA space? Right. Um, that's a good question. I, um, I is that know. something that you would ever consider doing going head to head with one of the big triple a i'll call it triple a but it, it's the the production values are there the scope is there triple a free-to-play games well i think we have to look at that right as we our industry is kind of growing and changing and people are engaging new generations of gamers coming in they want different content than what we've been providing so we have to be open to looking at that what do you think if you Again, this is an impossible question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So looking ahead to five years from now, do you think things are going to change in terms of what gamers want? And I'll, I'll, let's, let's keep it focused on console gamers. Um, possibly. I mean, with the streaming technology kind of becoming a reality maybe in that time frame, right? And subscription services now being offered and where do they go? So there's, there's a potential for the, the way we deliver content to radically change. How would that affect a studio like yours or like Insomniacs or any more traditional studio? What would you have to do? How would you think differently about well, production? Well, I, I think if you had, let's say, subscription service, yeah. you still want those tentpole games that drive people to want to be part of the service. So I think, you know, we'd always want to deliver AAA games. We still want, like, that's our drive. We still want to do some of that. Yep. I think it opens up a room or a place for smaller things, you know, to exist, where if they're just part of a subscription or a network... Now it's it's okay that that's a, a couple hour experience, so I think the the good thing that I see in that is it allows more creative things to exist yeah. without having to be these you know endless hundred hour experiences or or something that's so encompassing that it's worth your money. Do you think this is again a hard maybe a hard question to answer because I have trouble answering it? Do you think it's possible to create a smaller budget or medium budget size free to play game with AAA? production values. And I asked this, and I'll, I'll give you some background, because building those systems and gameplay mechanics that feel like they belong in a $60 console or PC game, but doing it for less, taking it all the way to finish, but for less is is something that's hard for us older developers <laughs> to wrap our heads around sometimes. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think when you see games kind of that evolve over time, I think maybe that's the way to approach mm -hmm. it. Like mm -hmm. you, you release something that's a little smaller and if it takes hold, then you kind of finish it. So you can, so, and, and again, I'm just, I'm maybe misinterpreting what you're saying. Uh, releasing with mechanics that may not be refined yet, right? Let's say it's a combat mechanic that works yeah, kind that, of fun. Yeah. Not, not, well, certainly games have done that. Right. And there's something that brings players in besides the fact that the game is free that hooks them. Right. Right. And that's I, I, I bring this up because I think a lot of us in this side of the industry struggle with that concept. But it, it does work and games have proved that it can work. But it's a scary cliff to step off of. Yeah. Really scary. <laughs> I think I was think, talking more content. So, OK, I think if you, in terms of mechanics, I think that's 
it's hard to imagine releasing something that you don't think is fun and refined enough yet. Well, let's, let's jump to that then. Uh, are there points in your development where you have those gameplay light bulb moments where things just have been not working and not fun? And then all of a sudden something, some switch is flipped and the game achieves its magic. Yeah, I think, I think that happens a lot, right? You know, new things that you're trying, you know, the way mechanic, like wall running or something like that. Like it doesn't, the first iteration of it was not fun at all. Yeah. What, you know? what changed about it that all of a sudden made it great? It's a refinement to it just being, I want to say easier, but it's just easier to engage, easier to use, not necessarily like easier in, in how it functions. So there's still a, a skill level to it, but the engaging it, making it work doesn't feel clunky. It doesn't mm. feel heavy. It's just a almost natural motion of, okay, now I can do this. Were there times where people were fighting to rip it out of the game because it just didn't work and there were some supporters who said no 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 no. let's wait let's wait we're almost there yes and how do you deal with that oh i think that's where you make the calls you know see how much time you have left and there are things that do get ripped out of the game because they just never make it to a point where they're fun or we don't have the time for the game well how do you so those are those decisions are the the nightmarish ones right <laughs> where you're struggling constantly as a person who's running the project and saying should i should I give it another month? Can I give it another month? How do you how do you do that? Is there a tech is are there things that you've done in the past that have been a good have where you can provide advice for those who are going through those struggles now? I mean, I think it's about looking at what you're working on, deciding uh, how much iteration has kind of gone into it already and how much improvement has there been and what are you sacrificing to keep working on it? Because hmm. ultimately, you know, you have a limited amount of time. Right. So are there other features that are going to get pushed off the end of the schedule because you're going to spend more time on something that may or may not make it? And then you just make a, a logical decision based on that. Yeah. And at what point then do you, well, let's, let's, let me back up for a second. So that, that I think comes back to quality. It's you're the ultimate arbiter of quality, right? The, or the game director who's running, running the project. Now, yeah. How do you, or how does a game director at Respawn say, this is not good enough. It needs to be better. I know we're running out of time, but you got to fix it. What's, what's the approach that works? I think it's just, like you said, it's that passionate plea of like, this and this is important to the game. Uh, we need to work on it. We need to, to get something fun. And then it either works or it doesn't. Are, are there some things that you like to avoid when having to give that kind of feedback? And I ask because, again, when it comes to development, this, these, those are the moments where a team could become passionate about solving a problem or check out. Right. And it's a fine line. Yeah, I think it's about remembering that every one of those features that you know somebody's put months of their time into, it's there's emotion there. Like it, it's something that they feel really strongly about because they've put a lot of themselves into it. So you have to treat it respectfully, even if it's something that ultimately isn't going to make it into the game. Mm you still have to realize it's somebody's baby. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. But, but a great, I think that's great perspective and it is easy to forget that if you're a game it director is. or somebody in charge of making those decisions all the time, what are the things do you guys do as a team that helps foster a cohesive collaborative culture at respawn? We try to do 
parties, kind of, you know, get everyone together, you know, like Friday nights, have some food and drinks and all hang out. And, you know, as we've grown, it's gotten harder. You know, yeah. we're over 300 people now yeah. at the studio. That's so incredible. It, uh, it gets tougher to do those kind of things. Uh, we do a weekly all hands meeting where everybody gets together and we kind of talk about the company. We kind of talk about what's going on in like HR, new people that are hired, kind of get up and introduce themselves. All the game directors talk about what's going on in their game. So it just kind of keeps people a little more connected. Wow. Every week for 300 people? Yep. That's impressive. Do you have a space that fits 300 people? Barely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's really cool. Uh, are there are there things that you like doing personally with the team? I mean, I think I would say I like to engage with people, like, you know, get up and talk to the, you know, especially like the game directors or the project leads or the, you know, different leads. Um it's been so busy the last probably year that I have not been doing that as much as I would like. So, that, but I think that makes to me a big difference for me feeling kind of more connected to what's going on. Yeah. It's hard with 300 people. It's hard. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's a lot of people to talk to and, and stay in touch with, but, but 300, I, I imagine, I mean, cause we're in the same situation. It's doable, right? I think when, when you get, I'm imagining when one gets to 500 or something right. even bigger, it's a little, it's, it's really challenging. Yeah, well, we had the, you know, with the sale of the company kind of happening last end of last year, almost a year ago now. So that kind of threw things a little off, mm -hmm. right? Of like now we're integrating and kind of making sure everything stays as similar as it can be. What was that like? I mean, was that was that a surprise to people or had you been working so closely with EA that it was sort of a an expected thing? I think both. I, you know, it's we had been involved with EA since the beginning of the company. Like uh, EA funded us to kind of get started. So to a lot of people, it wasn't a shock. Um, but at the same time, you know, there were some people, not everyone knew it was happening. Yeah. So I think some people were surprised that we weren't, you know, some people want that independent small studio and it's like, well, we're not really small anymore. So, <laughs> but I get the, I get the vibe, right? What are the pros and cons you think? Cause you've been independent. You've been part of larger, uh, publisher organizations. Uh, when you, when you look at both, what do you, how do you see them, the checklist sort of aligning? I mean, I guess independent, you can kind of kind of make your own decisions, but you're still, you know, you're working with the publisher. So there's a lot of give and take on that anyway. Um, but you get a little more of that. You feel free, right? But then there's less security working with a big company, especially as our industry is kind of growing and shifting. We have a little more insight into what's happening and, and kind of I think more power to change with the industry. Okay. I mean, by working more closely with a publisher, by being a part right. and seeing the inside workings. Right. Yeah. We have a lot more information on what's happening now within EA and within other publishers. That makes because sense. Because we're part of them. So. Okay. Has it, has it changed your culture at all? Um, not really. I think we've kind of, you know, we're, they bought us because we do something right, I hope. So we don't want to change that like and become just like anybody else, we want to be respawn, just we're part of EA. Yeah. So VR was a big part of that announcement too, wasn't it? You'd already been working in VR, right? And But I remember when I saw the announcement about respawn becoming part of VA, it was sort of reamplified. So what are your thoughts on VR today? I mean, we're in this industry because we like to be creative do something new, do something exciting, solve new problems. Yeah. VR gives you all that, right? Yeah. The install base maybe isn't there yet, 
So, you know, that's the downside of it. But at the same time, there's like new things that you can do in a game that are just, you know, you couldn't do before. And the, the, the sense of scale and the movement, and it's just, it's fun. I, I will commiserate. We are not commiserate. I will agree because we also are in VR and it is pretty astounding what you can build if in VR that just isn't possible to experience right. in a traditional game. So um, I love that. And that end of it is just, it's great. Yeah. Do you, where, where would you like VR to go? And, and I'm not talking mm -hmm. about audience installed base. I'm talking about when you think about tech and the experience itself. Well, I think once we get something that's, you know, reasonably priced, untethered, it becomes a different experience. You know, now everyone can use it kind of in a different way. You can walk around, you know, with it on. So I think that's the, the next logical spot for it, right? Yeah. Does it open up new design opportunities for you and your team? The untethered aspect? Probably. I, I'm just personally yeah. thinking about the idea of walking around without having to worry about the the cord that's yeah. attaching me to my PC, it, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Just in just, I, I will say I've, I've tried out some untethered high-end experiences and they're right. pretty darn cool. Really cool, actually. Yeah, that'll be exciting. So, uh, and just as a sort of a parallel track, what do you think of AR? Do you have any thoughts on where that's going these days? Not really, honestly, I have not looked at much of that stuff. So it sounds great. Yeah. But still early. It's still early, yeah. So as far as far as you personally, is this is this your career, you think, until you're dead and buried? That sounds morbid, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I should say. When you think about yes, the next, next 10, week. 15, 20. <laughs> oh man, I hope not. <laughs> no, me too. Um yeah, I mean, I just can't really the thought of doing something else seems odd to me because mm -hmm. I've just been doing this so long. It's what I know. It's what I enjoy. I feel, you know, lucky to be able to do something like this and, and get paid for it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's to me fantastic. I don't know what else I would do. What did you think you would do before you got into video games? I don't know that I had a clear enough idea. Really? Yeah. What did you think your parents expected you to do before you got into <laughs> video games? Probably not this. But really? Yeah. <laughs> did it did it take a while for your parents to accept the fact that you were in video games and successful? Um or did they support necessarily. You they supported me pretty well all along. I don't think they, you know, they're not gamers. They never, you know, had any of that. So they, I think to them it was a little bit of like, you know, oh, you're working on that Nintendo? Like, well, kinda, <laughs> not really. Sure. <laughs> but uh but yeah i think they've always been really supportive and how do your kids feel about you in video games is that it does are you the cool dad because you always have the best consoles and you are all the consoles and you can give them free games it's weird right because i remember growing up i had to like bust my ass to get a game like if i wanted to, to earn enough money to buy it and now I just, I come home and I have stacks of unopened games and kind of sitting on the counter and it's like, it, it takes away something from it, right? Um, so I think you get a little bit of both. There's the, hey, it's cool, you know, your dad works on games. And then you also get the, hey, I don't like the game your dad worked on. So oh, really? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> That's so you get it. both, both yeah. sides of it. Imagine Do, you run into that too. Pretty much. I mean, for me... My kids mostly and their friends talk about Fortnite. I think that's yep. 
the conversation that has not ended for the last six months. It just is constantly Fortnite. But I, I am gratified. I do get a sense of uh, pride when they occasionally will take 10 minutes off of Fortnite and play one of our games. I think that <laughs> that's kind of cool. But it is fun. It's fun to, I think, bond with the kids over games, our kids. And I, this sounds probably a little unfair to other industries, but I think it is unique for all of us in the games industry to have that automatic bridge to yeah. our kids because we're making something that they, I believe, automatically connect with versus, right. say, working in finance where maybe the kids don't quite get it yet right. when they're 12 or 15. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And I think just, you know, knowing other people in the industry, we're able to provide benefits to the kids, right? Like they yeah. get games or free things in games or get to go to events. And, you know, like my kids love League of Legends. We went to oh. PAX and they got to go up on stage and throw like codes out to the crowd. And really? It's like, you know, that's a great thing to be able to offer. Nice. That's very cool. Well, so, well going, going back to your stack of unopened games, this is something I struggle with all the time. How do you deal with that? What is, what is your approach to actually staying up on what's relevant in games today? Um, I try to play as much as I can. It's, uh, it's not always easy because there are a lot of great games, right? Yeah. Um, I did finish Spider-Man. All right. So Excellent. Um, and not even just because I was coming here. It was a great game, <laughs> by the way. Thanks. Um, some interest me more than others, right? Just naturally, you know, I gravitate towards different games. So I'll, those I'll probably put more time into. Yeah. But, you know, I try to kind of stay up on on everything. And I'll dedicate a certain amount of time every week to just playing something. Do you guys discuss games at Respawn? We do. How do you, how do you look objectively at, other, at the competition and say, hey, they, they did something great and maybe we should learn from that? And by the way, I will say that Call of Duty, I mentioned before, was a huge influence on us for several reasons. Uh, first, the, the the two weapon system that you guys had, the weapon switching, completely influenced a huge change that we made in Resistance Two. Great, it was massive, and uh, <laughs> and we had debate after debate over that. But you guys did it so well; it was it became sort of a no brainer for us. And the other thing was how you did training, how you do training in, in Call of Duty, and that was another thing we looked very carefully at. But anyway, getting back to the question. Uh, how do you guys debate and discuss what other games do and, and potentially bring those influences into your games? It's it's something that when something big comes out, it just naturally takes over the conversation because we're all always talking about what we're doing, especially if it is something close to what we're working on. Yeah. Then it just naturally becomes part of the conversation and we all talk about it. Um. We will occasionally kind of sit down, especially like with the game directors, and kind of sit down and talk about like new games that have come out, things that they're doing well. Like we have a, a purposeful meeting where we'll talk about things occasionally, but a lot of times it is just we're all such gamers that yeah. it just is naturally there. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, that you can do that, and, and it's good because you'll get other like certain people will pick out games that other people wouldn't. And they'll talk about a key element that I might have missed, you know, in playing through a game because they see it slightly differently. So having that conversation to me is great. I I love hearing that. And I, I hope other people in the industry love hearing that because we don't, while we're competitors, we're not really the kind of competitors that you yeah. see in other industries. It's definitely a very peer-based industry where we're always sharing and interested in discussing design and what was great about one game and great about another game and how can we sort of stand on the shoulders of giants often yep. and move the industry forward. 
That's great. So what, just sort of the last few questions, what, what do you think are the big ideas that can move our industry forward? It's a big question. It is. Sorry. Let me see. <laughs> Let me see if I can refine it a little bit more. What are some things that we could do better as an industry? I think we're starting to take story and emotion more seriously. To me, it's, it's a form of entertainment. And entertainment is all about emotion, making people feel something. So I think realizing that and, and putting, putting that kind of at the forefront of what we do, hmm. to me, is really important. That's great. I agree. And then, you know, just user flows and different things like that and making things more accessible. And, you know, that's, I think we've been gradually getting better and better at that as an industry. So I think the more of that we get, the better. I agree. Yeah, it's been so nice to see more and more attention devoted to accessibility yeah. in our industry. Well, and, and finally, when all is said and done, what do you want to look back on as sort of your fondest learnings from this industry? What do you want to feel like you've taken from this industry to your personally? And I'm not saying that you're going anywhere, but it just, <laughs> it's just fun to, to think ahead about these things. I guess it's looking at making people, like we make a lot of friends along the way, you included, right? Like, yeah. and we talk about games and what propels us. And so it's about those relationships and making sure we treat each other and our fans respectfully, because ultimately we're all a big group who are in this because we love it whether playing, making, you know, just being, talking. It's, it's, it's a passion-driven industry. Awesome. Well, thanks. And, and if people want to get in touch with you, how should they do that? Um, my email is vince at respawn.com. Great. Pretty right. easy. We don't make it really tricky to find us. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Thank you so much for discussing all of these topics and for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen.